Hi everyone, Drew Perot here, back at it again with another hit episode for you of the Broken Brain Podcast. Today we have my dear friend, Dr. Maggie Nay, naturopathic doctor and women's health advocate. Dr. Nay is the founder and director of the Women's Clinic at the Akasha Center for Integrative Medicine based in my hometown here in Santa Monica, California. Now, in today's episode, we do a deep dive with Dr. Naya on all things women's health and all things postpartum, from postpartum depression to quote-unquote mommy brain to hormones and understanding all the changes that happen in the brain during the postpartum period and the importance of community and so much more. We also do a deep dive into the topic of how women can get the most out of their yearly physical and the tests that they should be absolutely asking their doctor for that they may not normally order for them. Lastly, we talk about Dr. Nay's own health challenges as a young adult and how those challenges inspired her into her journey into naturopathic medicine and her focus and mission and passion in serving women at a much deeper level level than she felt that they were previously being served. If you care about women's health and want to learn about how to show up strong for either yourself or somebody you love, could be a partner, a daughter, wife, sister, friend, or anybody that's going through the postpartum phase, this interview is for you. Now, on to my formal intro for Dr. Maggie Nay. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot. Each week on this podcast, we invite a new guest who we think will help improve your brain health, feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Maggie Nay, who is one of the stars of the Broken Brain docuseries. Dr. Maggie Nay is a licensed naturopathic doctor and is the founder and director of the Women's Clinic at the Akasha Center for Integrative Medicine here in sunny Santa Monica, my hometown. She specializes in women's health, specifically how the interaction of diet, lifestyle, mindset, and environment affect a woman's hormones and the aging process. We're going to jump into all of that into this podcast. Dr. Nay has a deep passion for helping patients navigate preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum care. She's a mother to three girls and dedicates her practice to empowering women to understand their bodies and to help optimize their health so they can live their best lives, which is what this podcast is all about. Dr. Nay, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's such an honor to have you on here. Of course, we're friends and I adore your work. And I send you friends of mine and you've taken such good care of them. So I first want to just give you some gratitude for just being such an incredible practitioner who's really committed to helping people. And one thing that I hear from all my friends who uh, see you is they always talk about how great of a listener you are and just how present you are with them. And I think that's actually such an important thing to recognize because I would say for most people that we hear about, listeners from this podcast, people that watch the Broken Brain series, they often feel a disconnection with their doctor. What would you tell people of how, how can they find a doctor like you? How can they find somebody who's a good listener and how important is that to the process of healing? Finding a doctor that's a good listener, I mean, it's everything. I would not be able to do the work I do, which is I feel the most important thing is connecting with that person and having a relationship and really getting to know that person completely. It's only by really fully knowing that person that you can identify and really understand the root cause of what's going on. So like a 15 minute appointment for a symptom you're having, I mean, there's no, I mean, you could easily treat 
a sinus infection with an antibiotic, but you know, if someone's getting chronic sinus infections or chronic issues, or even doesn't even want to want to understand why they're getting sick so often. I mean, there's no way to fully understand that unless you look at the whole person, and that's the complete physical body, mental, emotional, looking at their community, their stressors. Do they like their work? How are they sleeping? What are they eating? All of those variables, those important foundational pieces to health are essential to truly understanding someone. Yeah, it's so key. And I think not everybody lives nearby or has access to go see, let's say, a naturopathic doctor or functional medicine doctor. But I think that even if you're working within the normal healthcare system, I think it's so important to find an open-minded doctor. Absolutely. Somebody that will be your partner and kind of dig into stuff with you and will listen. You know, doctors have so much on their plate and the constraints of insurance. They only have so many minutes because of their production goals and things that the hospitals tell them to do. But I think finding an open-minded doctor who even in that short period of time that you have with them that just pays attention and listens, at the end of the day, they're part of your team. And if they're not listening, you know, maybe they're not the right team member. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't just settle because, you know, your friend goes to them or they're easy, they're convenient. If you don't feel that connection, if you don't feel that it's an instinct, if you don't feel like they get you, look elsewhere. So true. Uh, You know, we're talking on World Mental Health Day. Oh, I didn't even know that. uh, (laughs) It's it's all over Instagram and people are talking about it. And I think it's really big because especially here in North America, mental health is is really become an important topic with recent suicides, with the loneliness epidemic that Mm -hmm. we're seeing. And it's so great to hear people uh, talk and think about it. Um, A lot of your patients and people that seek you out and obviously you see more than just mothers or people that are trying to get uh, pregnant. They struggle with postpartum and they come to you to look for, for help with that. So I think that's a great place to start off the, the podcast. And let's talk about postpartum. What is it? And when people come to see you and talk about postpartum, how do you help them navigate it big picture when it comes to their health and their life as a whole? Absolutely. So let's start with just what's happening in the postpartum period after we have a baby. Um, you know, most people talk about, you know, the mommy brain or postpartum brain. And um, that is an experience that most women, I would say everyone experiences to some degree. And so that is characterized by um, feeling less mentally sharp, being more forgetful, um, having more short-term memory, um, examples of, you know, walking into a room and not knowing why you walked in there, where did you put your car keys, forgetting a thought mid-thought, are just things that happen postpartum. Um, And there's a lot of different variables that contribute to that. one of which is sleep, and we can go into details, but sleep, um, the dramatic hormonal change that happens after you have a baby, stressors. Um, we have so much going on at any single moment um, that affects our just our minds and our bodies. And then we have actually neurophysiological changes in the brain. So, I mean, I think that sets us up for the postpartum experience and um, kind of what we're going in through, through after pregnancy and our nutrient stores and our diet and our lifestyle, all of that plays a tremendous role. So, you know, I don't think it's a simple answer as to why some people have a really, you know, easy experience, whereas some people have a really struggle with depression. Um, there are so many variables involved, and I think it helps to maybe go through each one. Yeah, I think that would be great. And I think the first thing is that it's just great to see people talking about it more often because I think that, um, you know, I always grew up around kids. I always grew up, I have so many cousins and I have a huge family. And so there was always people having babies and we were kind of like this extended, you know, village, even though we didn't live in a village. And, uh, 
I can clearly remember some of my, especially older cousins or, or younger aunts struggling with something, but then not having a conversation about it. Like it was taboo to talk about, or you don't go into it. I think a little bit of that's changing. People are more likely to talk about it, but there's some part that I feel in the past where society made women feel that they messed up if they're in that place. So let's even start, before we go into food and, and hormones, and, and we'll break down each category that you mentioned, let's even talk about like the mental stigma that people have, uh, especially on this day and this special occasion with somehow associating postpartum with some aspect that they have failed. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, you know, pregnancy and, and having a baby is, you know, through society is the, the greatest joy any woman, I mean, it's, it's expected to be the greatest joy and in so many levels it is. And so when a woman is not having that full joyful moment, there's judgment and women internalize that. Like I should be in a state of bliss right now and family members expect you to be in a state of bliss right now. And when you're not, and it's not understood and it's not considered a normal to have challenges, then it kind of develops a life of, of its own sometimes, where you go this downward spiral of what's wrong with me. Um, what are other people's expectations of me? Yeah, why what I was my so- my previous expectations? Yeah, I was so excited for this, and I'm not feeling that excitement right now, and what's wrong with me? Instead of pausing and appreciating that actually it's really normal. I mean, it's very normal to have challenges. Um, for it to be a struggle in the beginning. Mm. So that's the first part of it. Let's look at the other part of it. So part of the traditional approach on, on postpartum is let's talk about it and mm. then let's look at like maybe pharmaceutical ways of intervention and some other components. But in, in naturopathic medicine and functional medicine, it, it goes so much deeper. And as you mentioned, and I think this is a clear teachable lesson from the Broken Brain docuseries, you can have a hundred people that all have the same quote-unquote disorder dysfunction, let's say if you're calling it postpartum or some sort of uh, other disease in the body like eczema or Alzheimer's, but the root causes can all be different. Firstly, let's just talk about on that category, let's mm -hmm. pick one of those that you want to start off with and sure. let's help break it down and what the relationship might be to the woman and, and what role it plays inside of the body. Okay, sure. Um, let's just start with sleep because that's the most obvious one. I think everyone is affected by sleep when they have a newborn. And um, sleep in and of itself um, can affect the brain dramatically in just one poor night's sleep. So we know that even with just lacking one night's sleep, we're not thinking the same the next day. So our decision-making capabilities, our ability to be creative, our ability to concentrate, our ability to memorize, and memory is, is affected with just a single night poor sleep. And so to think about a lot of moms and dads too that have months, years of just not having adequate sleep, that affects the brain. And we also know that poor sleep can make women and men more susceptible to depression and anxiety. So you're kind of having that, you know, susceptibility already. And so our brain detoxes at night. I mean, there's so much that we do while we sleep that if we're not doing, we're just more susceptible to the challenges of life. We're less resilient. So something that wouldn't normally have been a stressor before, all of a sudden it becomes, feels bigger. So and sleep is huge. And we think that we could make up for it later on, and we can. You know, right. It has an impact 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think hormonally, and this is huge, there is a tremendous drop in hormones within a day or two of giving birth. So um, we had our placenta producing um, so much estrogen and progesterone in our body. And the moment we give birth and we birth that placenta, um, there's a plummet, like a thousand fold drop in hormones. Can you imagine like how much of a shock that is to the body? So we know that estrogen has a huge effect for the brain. Estrogen helps to increase serotonin. Estrogen helps to increase um, dopamine. So serotonin is our happy hormone. Dopamine helps us focus and learn. And so when that drops suddenly, we feel it. I mean, that is why the baby blues is pretty prevalent to everyone. It manifests differently, and it can certainly get more significant. And, you know, postpartum depression is sort of a category of its own um, because it is so significant and severe and sometimes warrants more um, aggressive therapies. But the whole postpartum period where, you know, that initial few weeks where it's just you're crying and just you just feel like a completely different person, often it's like this sudden drop of hormones and the tremendous effect it has in the brain. Can I bring up one aspect of sleep? Um, would love to get your opinion. Yeah. You know, you've, you've had kids mm-hmm. and you've been through this and you also teach this and you work with your patients. With the sleeping component, I just want to touch on it because it's always a conversation that's out there. Do you have any opinion on sleep training? I know it's like a big subject and there's always different conversations, but as a practitioner, as Maggie Nay the practitioner, do you have any opinions on sleep training? You know, I, was, I think it was you and I who were talking that like it, you almost have some of the same damage to the brain for a woman who's not getting long-term sleep as you would see in kind of like an Alzheimer's mm-hmm. patient. You get some of that amyloid plaque buildup from yes. just excessive amounts of not sleeping. And so on the practical level, there's always the question of like, are these things new in modern day society? Have we always been dealing with them? And are there other, how can we navigate the in-between? So just let's talk about sleep training first. Do you have any a professional opinion on it? <sighs> okay, so it's so hard because there's the professional opinion and then there's like, my me as a mom yeah um, we want to hear them both you want to hear them both okay I think professionally there's some warrant to sleep training I think it's we sometimes have to teach our kids how to sleep I think um, it's a process I think there's a right you know there's clearly you can't do it from day one but there is like a weight the baby has to be at that it's safe to sleep I think it's like 15 pounds um, that it's safe to sleep train they have to be you know a little older Um, I guess that's even now in question too I'm hearing that some doctors are doing it at eight weeks so I guess that's even up for discussion but yeah I think that there's some merit to sleep we know how important sleep is and if you can get that kid on good sleeping habits early there's some tremendous benefit yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and I think that the challenge is always, you know, uh, and I have a group of guy friends, some of them have just started having kids. We go on a hike, you know, on Thursdays, we call it man morning Thursday. Yeah, it's kind of like a gathering. Yeah. And, you know, we're always talking about like what can be done for our partners, especially the people who have kids. And there's this always this component. Well, it, you know, of like not sleep training, like I guess that would be co-sleeping, mm-hmm. right? That's co-sleeping. Could you explain what that is in context of sleep training and then what your opinion on both those worlds are? Yeah, so I mean, there is actually a little difference because you could not sleep train and the baby could sleep in another room and you're just getting up every time they cry. Right. So um, I guess let's just for a minute, just sleep training is, is you know, when the baby wakes up or when you're putting the baby down and they cry, you, you let them cry and there's different ways to do it. So. Right. Um, you know, you could just let them cry, 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 and then after a couple nights, they usually stop. Or there's ways where you check in on them, and there's different ways. There's, um, you know, you extend it by five minutes each time you go in, or you just do it every five minutes and reassure and leave. So there's different ways to sleep train. And 
Yeah, so co-sleeping is a, a choice decision people make, and there's a lot of, you know, lovely and beautiful research. That's sort of how we were meant to be. Babies weren't really meant to be on their, own. on their own so early, and there's a lot of security, and the breastfeeding is easier, and mom sleeps more when co-sleeping, usually. Um, so if it works for the family, there's there's absolutely benefits for mom and dad and baby and family beds. If it works for you, it's beautiful, it's amazing, go for it. it it doesn't work for a lot of people, and that's okay too. Um, but you kind of have to see what works for for you. But certainly, co-sleeping, um, most people sleep better because if the, you're right there, and if the baby wants to nurse, you could just roll over. You can still kind of stay sleeping, and I guess the bonding. Listening to a lot of my female friends, yeah. I, I feel like the ones who, again, just looking at it from a pure health point of view, there's so many other aspects to it. If sleep is one of the first components that are so important, I find that family members and people that are doing co-sleeping those are usually the ones that are that are just so tired you find that i find just again listening i've never had kids and i have not been through it so i'm just asking from a standpoint of like you have to see what works for you i mean every family has to decide and And if you find that you're not rested co-sleeping it's not the i mean that is for sure not the right decision if your baby's not sleeping well that's not the right choice but that's important i've never heard anybody say it like that directly i've sort of just heard that people say like look this is the better way to do it and whatever it takes you just do it and i see a lot of women whose health it's not the dude who's often suffering, it's the woman mm-hmm, who's mm-hmm. suffering out of it. But I've never heard anybody say it exactly like that. Okay, well, so that is something that um, extends to a lot of different categories because there's, you know, there's books for everything and they're sure. sexy and they sell, you know, but, you know, you have to see what works for you and you have to trust it. Mm. You, there is no, nothing is, no, there, don't go by any book. You have to see what works for your family and what works for you because if it feels good and you're rested and it feels right, it's good. I mean, so don't, don't be um, sold by you know what your midwife says or what the book says. I mean, you ha- you can try and experiment, but you have to do what feels right to you and your family. The one thing that we definitely know is that human beings have been trying things out forever, and there's not been one way of doing Absolutely. doing stuff. Let's go back to some of those other categories that you broke down. There's a few that I remember, and there's probably some other ones that are there. Let's talk about the role of. Uh, I heard food and I heard community or like food nutrition because mm-hmm. having a baby is such a taxing process of using the mom's reserves and everything else. Let's let's talk about food and then let's talk about community and how that plays a role into it too. Sure, yeah. I mean, your postpartum experience is sort of set up by how pregnancy is and pregnancy is often set up by what you're doing preconception-wise. So um, 100% of, of the baby's development when, when they're growing inside the uterus is from mom's nutrition and nutritional stores. And um, having adequate nutritional stores um, helps moms feel good and have energy and, and feed their baby the nutrients they need to grow. So if you kind of come from a depleted state, you're, you're not going to set yourself up for a good postpartum experience, which is why I think it's an amazing um, opportunity if you have a chance to set yourself up for, for preconception care and make sure your, your nutrient stores are replete and you have a healthy diet and you have the foundational pieces in place because it will set you up for an easier pregnancy and postpartum experience. Mm. How about community? What role does that play in the process? I mean, that's everything, right? <laughs> um, um, you know, we have we, we are increasingly living in a more isolated world right now. So especially in the postpartum period, the way it is, it's 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 really not how we should be. Like we should be surrounded all day, really, with a community of people when you have a baby. Um, 
you know, we have we have our grandparents and our aunt. I mean, that was historically what happened. But now, so many times, you know, the women are alone, and maybe there's people around for the first week or two, but then after that, they leave. And we're we're really meant to do this as part of a, a tribe and community. So, um, you know, I tell people sometimes you kind of in this day and age, you have to pay for your. Sometimes, you know, you have to get that extra support in, which means you know having someone help you clean the house or maybe someone to watch the baby while you take a shower if you know you don't have that support there. Which is just a new way of thinking about it, but I think it sometimes takes the guilt away. Think that you're like hiring someone to clean the house or hiring someone to watch the baby. I mean, you need that help. But for sure, we know from studies that friendship and community is so important for health and wellness and longevity. So to not have that puts a, a stress on someone. And how have you navigated it in um, both during your pregnancies and, and, and afterwards? You know, with and regards also, to community? Yeah, with regards to community and also being a practicing doctor and the other projects that you're up to, were the things that you've seen in, in your experiences that, that helped? Or were also, you know, challenging. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was um, um, learning to accept help from friends uh, and learning to say no. For me, those were the biggest things, but they were they were really big. Yeah, I'm getting better at it, and I'm realizing, wow, it's like it's it's dramatic. Um, not feeling like you have to say yes to everything and do everything. Where the old me, I would have like these are things I saying no to things that I would have normally loved to do, like volunteer at my daughter's. School, you know, I can't always do that, and I just am. I'm now. I'm okay with it. It's fine. It's how it is right now. I had an experience where I was invited um, like a month ago to a dinner party, and I said, "What can I bring?" And you know, they said a fruit salad. You know, and I was like, Whoa, "That felt too much." You know, I'm just saying, like with three kids, and I, I was like, you know, I, I can't. I, I, I don't think I can bring the fruit salad. What else can I bring? They said, "How about some drinks, like wine and juice for the kids?" I was fine. I got it. You know, and they and they didn't react. They understood. Yeah, and most so, people are okay. It's usually our yeah. own internal story. I mean, to say no to a fruit salad—that is something I never would have done before. But it felt too much, and it really just for me. Wow, it was it was a game changer. I, I realized that that's okay. It worked out, and I knew it took a tremendous amount of stress off my plate because. You know, like every minute of every day is like, it's really is busy. You don't, to, so for me, that was too much. Hmm. Anything else that you want to talk about? Any of those categories that relate to postpartum before we move on to some of our next subjects? Yeah, I want to talk about the brain because the brain actually changes. And Let's I, talk about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, That's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. <laughs> so that experience of, you know, forgetfulness and forgetting a word or wondering why you walked into a room or forgetting your thought, again, mid-thought, um, there's actually changes in the brain that's going on that I think are fascinating. So our spatial memory is affected. So absolutely, our ability for short-term memory and for where we parked our car, that area shows less activity in the postpartum period. But what is fascinating, and I love this, is that there are other areas of the brain that show a lot more activity. Mm. And that's areas of the brain that are um, responsible for empathy, and emotional connection and um, motivation and drive. So when we have these moments for, of forgetfulness, you know, I it, it can be unnerving for women. I mean, it really does feel a little bit like mild dementia. Like, oh my God, who? What is going on? This is not who I am. It can be unnerving, but. In those moments, you know, I remind myself, I remind my patients, look at all these other areas of the brain that are growing and changing. And again, that, you know, em- ability to empathize and the emotional connection, those areas of the brain are changing. So, um, and if you would put your philosopher hat on for a minute, do you think just like that goes back to just genetically, 
that you know we all have different phases of life and women after giving birth it's like there's this beautiful next phase that they're in and that might mean prioritizing certain things and not prioritizing others without a doubt our brain is reprioritizing for us like we are not supposed to be editing our book right now or starting a whole new project when we have a baby like that's just not what we should be doing we need to be connecting and bonding and so you know we live in a world i'm always asking like you know our bodies really haven't changed so much since the beginning of time but our world and our life and expectations and societal expectations on us have changed you know what is normal and natural and um we might have an expectation that after we give birth we should just be right back at it but no we need to pause and rest and um so yes the brain changes i think are re with we can't control it. it's reprioritizing what really needs to be focused on after giving birth and i think there's this modern conversation which is so beautiful which is that you know women traditionally who have had the short end of the stick of expectations from just society as a whole could that be from men could be just from whatever the the society was some women want to immediately go back to work mm-hmm. some women don't want to and there's people in the middle that feel that they have to go in one way or another based on the expectations like the expectation you hear it often you know go to different conferences my friends have some amazing podcasts and they'll say like this expectation of like you know we should have it all and it's like you should have anything you want and there are fundamental changes that are happening inside the body so every person has to honor it for what's going on for them absolutely and how do you help navigate people on that when you see when you see resistance or you see a lot of expectations that show up for uh, the patients that you're working with uh, obviously part of it is like awareness but do you refer them out to other people or modalities or books that can help them unpack some of these beliefs that sometimes are just so ingrained and old? Well, sure. I mean, I think there are some incredible um, therapists that work during the postpartum period. I mean, that specialize in that period. And I think that that's key to just kind of go through what your expectations of yourself are. And why do some people, I mean, sometimes it all it takes is awareness. Like, does this make sense? Does this feel right? Well, no, it doesn't. I'm okay now. You know, but sometimes it's so deeply ingrained from somewhere Um, how they should be and how they should act and how they should feel. It's not coming internally, but it's coming, it's been a script written by someone else um, that that needs to be looked at more deeply. Um, I'm a big believer in a lot of different modalities. So, um, and supporting that, you know, working at an integrative medical center. So, you know, whether it is, you know, talk therapy or somatic therapy or maybe acupuncture, uh, physical medicine, you know, all of those modalities, depending, you know, can be really helpful during this process. What else is important for both men and women to understand about the brain and some of the changes uh, in, in postpartum? Um, I think it's, you know, it's to know that there is in the postpartum period in this day and age, a, like a, a strong um, dichotomy a little bit. There is like this strong draw to the baby. Without a doubt, so we talked about the the brain changes that are, are really geared towards um, focusing on the baby, right? We we have more oxytocin, which is a hormone that's like our love hormone, and it makes us bonded, and it's produced when we have skin to skin contact or when we're nursing, and it just makes us fall in love with the baby. So there's this draw towards the baby. There is um, the cognitive, just wow, I always wanted a baby, and here's the baby, you know, here's my cute baby. There's that draw. We know that the empathy and all of that's going on. So there is this huge draw towards the baby, but at the same time, 
like we are women and men, you know, and, and we are humans and we have our own interest and our own, you know, something separate than that as well. So we have, um, you know, hobbies that sometimes don't get the attention they need in the beginning, or we have um, rituals that we have done to take care of our mind and body that sometimes can't be done in that period as well. Um, we may want to um, go to the bathroom alone or take a shower uninterrupted. I mean, these are just simple things that aren't being met. So I think being aware of that and not necessarily feeling uncomfortable with those moments when you're like, I just want to take a shower. What's wrong with, you know, like you get to just be, this is normal. I mean, just that dichotomy, that push-pull going on in the brain is is completely normal. Uh, you don't have to talk about any part of it that you don't want to, but from the um, raising three beautiful kids and your pregnancies, um, did you suffer at all from postpartum? And uh, again, you don't have to jump into it if you don't want to. And as a practitioner, you know, did you feel like the knowledge that you had um, helped you through that process? Yeah, no, I never um, fortunately suffered from postpartum depression. Um, I always just felt such this enormous sense of bliss and happiness with having a baby. I definitely got more emotional. Like things would just make me cry. You know, I would read like a children's book about like a mom and daughter loving each other and I would just cry or I'd hear you know, a, a story on the news and just cry. So that I definitely would have. But I never had the depression piece. As far as like, you know, I will say I've had very different pregnancies and maybe this is a little off topic, but I, um, but I think it's important, very different birthing experiences. And um, with my first, my oldest, who's almost nine, you know, I had um, a home birth with a midwife and it was beautiful and a quick, easy labor. And my second birth was in the hospital, also very quick and easy. And my third birth, I was hooked up to wires, I mean, I was hooked up to wires, machine, everything that I thought I didn't want to have with my first birth. It was so important to be away from that. And what I have taken from all of this is it doesn't matter off topic here, but it really doesn't matter, you know, where you are when you give birth. It's your mindset. You know, you could be anywhere and have a beautiful birth. You don't have to just, you don't have to have that home birth. I remind my patients too, because, um, you know, some of them have this idea they want to have a home birth and, you know, maybe the husband or the family doesn't always feel comfortable with that. Um, you can be anywhere and have such a beautiful experience. So, um, for me, again, the support. I will say what I recommend for um, all new moms is that first two weeks after having a baby, you don't do anything. Like there's, You have nothing to do. There should be nothing on that to-do list. There should be no obligations except for being with your baby and loving, if you have other kids, loving those other kids. But there should be nothing you have to do. There should be no lunches packed, no, no food prep for you. I mean, those two weeks are sacred. Like you'll get back to real life. Some people feel uncomfortable with that, but you'll get back to it. But those two weeks, really, you don't really, you can maybe go for a little walk, but you don't go, you don't drive. You just take that time to heal and bond and connect. You work with all sorts of different patients, but you have this passion for really helping women. Give us a little bit about your background and, and where did that focus come from? Yeah, I had my own personal experiences that led me to be really interested in women's health and realize that, um, women weren't being served in the way I felt they should. So for me, um, you know, I had in high school irregular periods. They just didn't come regularly. My mom took me to the OB who said, oh, okay, no worries, here's some birth control pills. And that was that. And, you know, I started taking them or, or had a conversation with her. I'm like, oh, so, all right. I had just thought that the pill was just starting my period again, that that was the answer. 
but yeah, there wasn't even like the formal education of like what is it for like what is it doing yeah or like it's not your real period that's coming i mean it's you're gonna get a monthly bleed but it's it's the birth control pills this is wasn't discussed at the time but sure. in looking like that pill it, you know is just shutting off your normal hormone cycles and you're just bleeding because of the the hormones that are in the pill and so when I realized that, I was like, that just seems so strange that how come she didn't even, like, I was okay with it. I took it for a little bit, you know, it's a whole another conversation. I took it, but I just thought it was so strange that it wasn't, the why I wasn't getting a period wasn't even an interest to her. And was there no other solution to break, was there no curiosity at least to explore how to regulate it? Mm. So, um, you know, that kind of piqued my interest. So I always wanted to, I always wanted to be a doctor. When I got to college, I remember um, mentioning that on the first day to the advisor who's like, for some reason she made me feel overwhelmed. She's like, oh, well, you need to be taking biology, organic chemistry. And I said, well, hold on, you know, so I paused and I didn't actually pursue medicine until I went to, after I graduated, I took all the pre-med requisites and um, planned to go to conventional medical school until I started shadowing doctors and um, working in different clinics and realizing, you know, you have your, your chart on the door, you know, before they go in to see the patient and they would pick it up and they would say, oh, um, you know, sinus infection, which I think I used that example earlier. Okay, so we'll see them. We'll probably give them augmentum and maybe a steroid nasal spray and they'll be out the door and we'll go see the next patient. Right. You know, and I'm just like, that doesn't feel right. So, okay, with regards to women's health, you know, there's just seems to be this mystery that women don't truly understand their bodies and their hormones, I think, are so important. And when you can understand it and when you can teach it to other people, um, it becomes less of a mystery, less judgment, more self-acceptance, more love, more empowerment to take care of your body. So I just feel like women's health and what's going on hormonally to women isn't really talked about. Yeah, it's just like uh, the, there's a company thinks that makes underwear for for women that basically replaces like tampons, mm -hmm. and a big part of their marketing is like this is the most beautiful thing in the world. The fact that a woman has a period every month it can give birth to a uh, a creature, right? Like create yes. like a living thing, feed it then afterwards, and yet for so long, women were taught that. It's messy, it's taboo, you don't talk about these subjects. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and then that people can internalize that and just feel bad about themselves and negative and carry around that negative self-talk, which doesn't serve you. So you had your background and experiences and you pursued um, your uh, degree in naturopathic medicine and became a naturopathic doctor. What do you find that uh, women come and talk to you um, the most. Let's go through the different sort of like, you know, there's obviously different stages, right, that people are in. Yeah. And let's talk about some of the common things that people come and talk to you about and we'll unpack each one and discuss it a sure. little bit. So we hinted, uh, we talked about postpartum because mm -hmm. I think it's important to talk about that today and put light on that. Let's talk about infertility and conception, mm -hmm. which isn't just about women, it's about men too. Mm -hmm. But with your focus on women, uh, what what are you noticing that people come and talk to you about when it comes to that subject? Okay, so with regards to infertility, which is generally people have been trying for you know some amount of time, we, it's characterized as, as a year if you're under 35 and six months if you're 35 and older. So usually people come in, you know, I've been trying for so long, I'm not getting pregnant, let's do a workup. So um, that um, you do kind of straightforward hormone assessment just to make sure hormones seem to be okay. I mean, there's kind of like the conventional path 
that needs to be looked at and, and, and the integrative. So that's, that's the great thing about naturopathic medicine is that we can really look at both. So starting on like this, just ruling things out, you know, you want to do um, like a day two, day three hormone level to look at FSH and estrogen. And um, that kind of tells you if you're you know, not in per- early perimenopause. So you want to just make sure your hormones are okay. And that seems things, things seem to be working well endocrinologically. AMH is another hormone that I like to look at. It's um, anti-malarian hormone and it looks at your egg reserve. So, you know, we like to look at that. And most times those numbers are, are fine. And then men, super easy. Sometimes men don't get checked out until women have been poked and prodded and worked up and and then the men get checks and maybe they have like a semen issue. So um, they're so easy to get screened. Just to do it, cross them off the list if it's the issue. So just a semen sample for the men, that usually takes care of that. And then it's looking um, at the whole picture. So it's looking at you know food and, and nutrient deficiencies. There's a lot of nutrient deficiencies like zinc or B12 or folate that you know are so important for healthy pregnancy and maintaining pregnancy looking at potential obstacles have so the nutrient deficiencies heavy metals you know if there's a lot of like mercury or lead in the system that's certainly an obstacle to conception food sensitivities can sometimes play a role in just creating it like an internal inflammatory environment that's not hospitable to conception high in like processed sugar and other food triggers that might be there absolutely or like uh, insulin resistance plays a role if you have a lot of insulin and glucose in the system that can disrupt your endocrine system to have healthy conception so yeah it's looking at the whole person stress levels plays a huge role um you know our all of our hormones start from cholesterol and from there it can go down two different pathways it can go down the sex hormone pathway to make estrogen and progesterone or it can go down the adrenal pathway to make cortisol so if we're under a lot of stress that pathway is going to be pushed towards keeping us alive not having babies right like just that makes sense and on some level if you're under a lot of stress those hormones can be used to make cortisol and less to make healthy robust sex hormones so um you know that plays a role too in looking at your stressors and adrenal health all of that plays a significant role i should also say um you know luteal phase is the um phase from ovulation to when you get your period and you want to make sure that that's uh, at least you know like 12 to 14 days um and so i see this quite frequently that sometimes people um don't have that length of time so of, of a healthy luteal phase and that means sometimes they need a little extra progesterone support in the second half of their cycle and continuing through the first trimester so it's looking at that sometimes that luteal phase deficiency we call it isn't always um, looked at with a conventional workup but I've seen it a number of times be the cause of someone unable to you know get pregnant or maintain a pregnancy I think a big part of your work is just providing options because again going back to this conversation of sometimes people think that women can think that there's something wrong with them uh, if they're suffering from postpartum there's also this feeling and there's so much so many emotions that are associated with just even uh, fertility and conception and and other components and and part of your work I know because I've referred people over to you for this topic you really help them unpack and educate them that um, it's it's it has nothing to do it's it's almost like it's a foot in both worlds it has nothing to do with them as a person, and yet there's so much that we can do that you are empowered in, that you can actually make changes in your diet, and you can make changes in other things that modern life has 
change so much that it can affect somebody's ability to to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important thing to acknowledge. It's like you're not blaming. It's not there's not any internal blame about the person but they should feel empowered at the same time. Totally, I mean, without a doubt. So um, there's a lot in the world that we can't control and trying to control it will just create unease in the body because we just can't control it. But there are so many things we can control and that's exciting and that's empowering. And if we can optimize the areas where we can control, you, know, you will see a benefit in the body. So a lot of women come to you and in your, in your work uh, during like a shift in life phase. And there might be a transition, hormonal transitions that happen across their different um, lifespans. So let's pick one of those that you deal with frequently and uh, let's do the same thing. Let's unpack it and let's talk about what might be going on during this transition of hormones and how, how some of those things can relate to you know, mood disorders and other challenges they might be dealing with. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about menopause and perimenopause yeah. because um, whether you're so far away from it, it's not, doesn't seem relevant you will be one day or you know someone going through it, right? So it, it's relevant to everyone. I do a lot of work with perimenopause and menopausal women. So during um, perimenopause, hormones are up and down. Um, so people can feel that kind of up and down symptoms with regards to mood and energy level and levels of vitality. And during menopause, when the, you no longer get your period, that's one year of not getting your period, that's like officially menopause, you're basically, your hormones are low. Your estrogen's low and your progesterone's low and testosterone is low. And you're not getting the benefits from hormones. So hormones are involved in every single metabolic reaction in the body. So it's not just about, you know, conception, but it's also about energy and muscle recovery after exercise and our brain health and our just level of vitality and our bone health and our heart health. I mean, hormones are involved in all of those in metabolic balance. So when hormones are really no longer being produced in the system, you know, women often don't feel good. So I see a lot of women that are, you know, in their 70s and 80s and have been hormone, they haven't taken any hormones and feel great. And that's amazing. And that means they're feeling energetic and productive and sleeping well and their lab levels look good and they feel great. But most women don't fit in that category. Most women have a huge shift during the perimenopause and menopausal period. And, um, a lot of people don't understand that you know it's you know it's not a coincidence that during menopause perimenopause you know all of a sudden sleep is disrupted there's more anxiety there's more depression there's brain fog maybe this is the first time ever you have high blood pressure or your blood sugar is increasing um, or cholesterol levels, you know, you're, you're just noticing these changes. It's not separate, but what happens a lot is that women are referred to the therapist or psychiatrist, the cardiologist, and um, the root cause really is, is the hormones. And interesting because, you know, we used to die in our 50s, like our, long, our lifespan has increased so much. You know, to expect to live, and, and and I think you know society has expectations on ourselves, and I think we have our own personal expectations on ourselves, to be productive and energetic and vital and exercise and continue working and have the same level of energy and vitality as in our youthful days, hopefully, um, to have that expectations without actually having the hormones in our system isn't always realistic. It's not fair. So I think, you know, way back when we used to, you know, I tell my page, we used to be like, slow down. We had, we slowed down when we went through menopause. Um, we were the wise women of the village. We were surrounded by people, but we weren't super active. So you know, when we talk about, you know, menopause is 
a natural process and we should honor that process, which is very much like a naturopathic perspective, like we should honor this. And But then you have to look at what's normal and natural in this day and age. And should we be living to 80 and 90 and exercising and working hard and being so involved? Like, I know I want to be like that. I want to be doing that. But for women to have that, be able to do that without hormones, it can be a challenge. What are some of the other things, you know, part of the work that you do in, in integrative, functional medicine, naturopathic medicine is that you also can bring in additional tools, additional therapies, additional modalities, you know, in addition to all the basics of to help support the hormones. You talk about food, talk about other aspects. Let's talk about like acupuncture and some of these other tools and resources. Can they be helpful during that phase? Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, acupuncture can be um, tremendously helpful for all aspects of, of hormonal transition. So, I mean, fertility, absolutely. Acupuncture has been shown to be really helpful for PMS. And then for menopause, perimenopause, um, acupuncture can be really helpful for definitely the physical symptoms of like hot flashes and night sweats, but also the emotional symptoms. You know, if you're having more depression or anxiety, if you're feeling less resilient, um, where things that used to bother you didn't bother you, and now all of a sudden it just feels too much, you know, naturopathic medicine and Eastern acupuncture can be really helpful. And so just big picture, because a lot of people have heard of acupuncture, and then sometimes I'm still surprised how many people have not tried acupuncture. Yeah. Just big picture concept in this context of women's health and hormones. How does it work? Acupuncture? Yeah. Well, it, it's a totally different philosophy than Western medicine. So it comes from the world of Chinese yeah, medicine. Yeah, it's Eastern. So, you know, naturopathic medicine is still Western-based. Um, it's so... Traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture is it's Eastern, yes, comes from China, and it works along you know qi and different organ systems that aren't are not our traditional organ systems. So like the liver for Chinese medicine is is a little different than our liver and kidney and um, is different than our kidney. So a lot of times they'll use um, phrases like kidney qi deficiency, you know, which is you know describes different health issues. So as far as like specifics is like interpretation of like what a typical menopausal woman goes through in an Eastern perspective. I'm probably not, that's not my area of expertise, but big picture, picture, yeah, they stimulate and relieve um, obstacles with regards to energy flow and support different organ systems. And there's some great Eastern herbs that can help um, with the balancing of the hormones and making you feel tremendously better. Any other tools you have in your toolbox that you'll add in in addition that that might be supportive for uh, hormonal health? Uh, especially in like, let's say like the menopausal period? For sure. So this is a time when um, all the other areas that you have control over become very important. And that will limit symptoms of the actual hormones being absent from having such a big effect on your body. So, um, you know, just walking through each one, you know, a clean whole foods diet, limiting sugar and processed food, things that cause blood sugar dysregulation can have a, can actually like trigger hot flashes. So having a very clean diet, limiting the sugar and processed food, there's triggers like alcohol, spicy food, you know, hot liquids like tea and coffee can be trigger foods. So being mindful of that, um, maybe bringing in some more cooling foods, like, you know, like this is more Eastern, like cucumbers, and that can just cool internal environment. Exercise has been shown to be really helpful. And when I say exercise, I just mean like moving your body and being active, um, getting outside in nature. Um, as far as herbs and supplements, there's a lot that can be helpful. So um, maca is a great adaptogen that works 
adrenal adaptogen, so it supports the adrenal glands, which is our stress gland, but it also helps support with hormonal balance. So that works really great. Um, I really like magnesium as a mineral that is calming, but it's also a cofactor in a lot of different enzymes in the body. So I think that can be um, a great addition as well. Looking at thyroid health, I guess I haven't talked about that, but that's also important for fertility and and working up an infertility um, patient, but um, making sure your thyroid is optimal. Um, you know, there's a big range of normalcy for thyroid and some people feel really most, a lot of people, at least for fertility wise, um, there's a, a, certainly an optimal range for healthy fertility that a lot of doctors don't recognize. And, um, even during the perimenopausal range, taking a good look at that thyroid function is important. So I want to, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I want to talk about that for a second. As people become familiar with this podcast and other work inside of the, the health world, the, the common complaint that we hear um, both for men and women, is I go for my yearly physical and my checkup and I get my blood work done and my doctor says everything is fine. Um, let's talk about like the basic testing, basic blood work and, and other tests that might happen for, for women's health and what you as a naturopathic doctor would recommend because sometimes blood work comes back and it's not even complete. You mm-hmm. don't look at a lot of things that are are very essential. So what would you suggest that if people are going to work in partnership with their doctor, when it comes to their yearly checkup of just how they're doing, of the test that they should get that they may not be getting, and the importance of those uh, tests that would be on there? Sure. So um, definitely get a CBC. So the CBC looks at um, red blood cells and white blood cells, and that's essentially you know ruling out any acute infection or anemia. And then looking that a little further, definitely get a ferritin, which is stored iron, and then even a total iron and a percent saturation and TIBC. So those are looking to see if there's any borderline anemia. So you may not be, um, you know, just with the CBC, which looks at red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit, all those three have to be low to be anemic, but you can be very close to it. And you don't want to start pregnancy without having a good iron store. So the ferritin, you know, close to 50 is optimal. Um, and do you find that sometimes, you know, you're, you're at the Kasha Center, you guys are always getting blood work, obviously, from other doctors mm-hmm. as people transfer over to you as a patient. Do you find that sometimes that's missing on the labs? Or? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, definitely there's everyone does a CBC, but for sure the ferritin is sometimes missing or looking at, you know, maybe total iron levels. It helps. Like, I'm not into, oh, I know there's a lot of functional docs that order hundreds of tests. And I mean, as far as the basics, which we're going through, I, I these, these are... There's some overlap with base, with conventional doctors, but a lot's missing. So to get that complete picture, yeah, I'm, the ones I'm going to talk about, I think, are really essential. And I think it's also important to, to go over them with your doctor. So, you know, at least the first time I see a patient when I order a blood test, I have them come back in and we go line by line through it. And people really appreciate it because, yeah, they've gotten calls like, oh, your labs are fine. No worries. That's it. You know, like my husband's doctor, you know, labs, he says I'm healthy. It's fine. He has no idea what's tested for. It's important to know. So, and people really appreciate it. it it's exciting and it's empowering to learn about your body. So, so let's go through a few yeah, more. Yeah. So, the CBC, the ferritin, the iron. For sure, this is basic. Most people do a complete metabolic panel. So, that looks at electrolytes, your liver function, your kidney function. We like to look at that. Um, I also like to add a GGT on. Um, that's not traditionally done, but it is an enzyme that tends to elevate if you have fatty liver or you drink too much alcohol, but mostly like the fatty liver that. Um, 
will show up as being elevated. And that's really common these days with, you know, insulin resistance going on. So we check that. You know, I will just do a straight lipid panel. I mean, we can talk more about the detailed different types of, you know, cardiometabolic panels out there, but a detailed lipid panel. So we're looking at total cholesterol, triglycerides, fasting. So nothing but water past midnight. So total cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, which is your bad cholesterol, HDL, which is your good cholesterol, and then an HSCRP. So an HSCRP is not routine. That The lipids are usually done, but the HSCRP is a marker of inflammation in your body. Um, that's not always being done. and Most times it's not being done. Yeah, and so inflammation, we know, is the root cause now of so many different health issues. And it's, it's you know, chronic inflammation, which is surprisingly very common, is a risk factor for heart disease and dementia, cancers. So we that's an easy test to do. And uh, people say when I see them and their inflammation is a little elevated, you know, well, where is it coming from? And, you know, we don't always know. We have to investigate. But could in, be an infection the body's dealing with, could be toxicity exposure, absolutely. could be heavy diet metals, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Poor sleep, stress even has and, a role. And it's sort of like more of a complete story. Obviously, Dr. Hyman's written a whole book on, on this subject, but you know, cholesterol alone, we can't know fully about our risk of a cardiovascular Absolutely. event. Most people that come into the hospital and have had a heart attack have cholesterol within normal range. Right. Absolutely. So we want more information to yeah. tell the more complete story. I mean, in, in actual, like, yes, that's absolutely true. And, and, um, people, cardiologists and doctors are still kind of going off that your total cholesterol is high. Let's start you on a statin, which is flawed and research and science doesn't even support that. But getting that number, you know, it's, it's still helpful. We, but still you helpful. have to look at it in the whole picture. So, you know, for example, if your you know LDL is slightly high, which is your bad cholesterol, but your inflammation is low, that's usually okay. But it's yeah. the danger comes when the inflammation is high and it's oxidizing that that bad cholesterol. But there's a lot of different cardiometabolic markers that can be looked at, depending on the goal of the patient and what they're coming in for. But you know, looking what at life symptoms they're experiencing exactly, or or yeah, exactly, or their family history. So there's you know APOA, lipoprotein, little light. There's different markers just so people hear it and know it than just those straight lipid panels that can be done. What what else um, is missing? Yeah. So um, there's certain vitamins just straight up that I like to look at. So uh, vitamin D level. Sometimes that's still missing from people. I see it missing all the time. Yeah. A lot of my my uh, cousins or, or friends will, you know, they'll say, "Oh, can you just take a peek at my blood work or a doctor that I could work with and that sort of thing?" And obviously, I'm not giving the medical advice. I'm not a medical doctor, but just to see is it complete mm-hmm. or not, because I know what questions our doctors at, at our clinic are going to be asking, and vitamin D is often missing. So tell us, just let's spend a little bit of time on that, because sometimes people hear vitamin D, oh, it's just like a vitamin, you know, yeah. well, it's just like a vitamin that's missing. So what if you're a little bit low? but it plays so much of a bigger role. Can you expand on that? Yeah, vitamin D acts more as a hormone in the body. It's essential for energy, hormonal health. Um, we know that vitamin D is important for heart health and protects against a number of different cancers as well. So it's a very important vitamin for mood too. Like for, you know, we know that vitamin D deficiency, people are more likely to have um, depression or anxiety. Vitamin D deficiency can affect um, ability to get pregnant. Um, so it really does affect all avenues. So for someone not to be checking it when there's so much research out there to support how important it is and usually how easy it is to correct, this, it's just not um, complete health care if you're not even just testing that simple marker. There's the checking of it, and there's often, I think this is an important thing to touch on, often you know, 
well-meaning doctors are behind the times in terms of the latest research that's out there. So there's the range of where that vitamin D is and what would be considered normal. Normal is usually based on just the general population. Mm -hmm. So if most people are deficient in vitamin D, then normal, every deficient is like normal. Mm -hmm. And then there's what's what's optimal. And so for instance, in something like vitamin D, like where do you like to see the, the levels? Yeah, so I see this a lot even with my parents. The normal range is anywhere from 20 to 30 is the low end to um, about 100 is the big range. So, you know, someone could test it at 23 and be told that they're totally normal. So look at your levels. You should be close to about a 50 at least. Um, like, you know, 50 to 80 NG per ml is where we really should be to get the health benefits. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you get it from the sun. And you totally do get it from the sun. But it's just a little bit more complicated than trusting you probably have adequate levels because you're in the, the sun a lot because you're not getting it if you wear sunscreen. I've read some studies that say you have to sweat in the sun and then not shower for a couple days to actually get adequate vitamin D absorption. So I think it's just a little bit more complicated than sun, although I do recommend getting, you know, direct sunlight on, for, on unexposed skin, but it's a little- in California, we have- It's so common. Tons of people that come into your yeah, clinic that absolutely. are vitamin D deficient. Moving well, what, on, oh yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, uh, what, what about the female, especially for women, since that's kind of the theme of the podcast a little bit, let's talk about hormones. Yeah. And like what's commonly tested and often what you see is missing and how people can get a little bit more of the complete story with by adding some things. Sure, sure. I just have to add one other to the other yes, lab test. Is the hemoglobin A1C. Yeah, let's talk um, about that. That's pretty yeah, important. Yeah, just real briefly, just some of those more metabolic markers that I think are important. The hemoglobin A1C is not always done. So hemoglobin A1C is a three-month average of blood sugar. So um, you can get a fasting glucose, and that could be normal, you know, maybe in the 80s. But a hemoglobin A1C could be pre-diabetic. So, and what story does it tell you when a patient comes back with higher hemoglobin A1C? Like what is part of the story, the narrative that you're understanding? I'm being told that obviously there's some work to do with, with regards to diet and yeah, exercise. They have, they have a, a higher amount of sugar than even they're aware of. For sure. Even if they think they're eating healthy, there's so much sugar being added to the foods that we buy right. in this day and age. Yeah, so it's just we need to investigate further. You're right. So people could be thinking they're eating healthy because they're eating you know, more, more grains than maybe their body can metabolically handle. You know, I tell all my patients, everyone is so metabolically unique. So it's like how you feel and then your physical exam and your blood work. And those are the three pieces that we look at to get the complete picture. And if you're feeling good and your physical exam is great, but your labs are showing that, you know, you're, you're having, you know, a little, your insulin is a little higher than it should be and your um, hemoglobin AC when it's a little high, then we need to look a little bit more in detail. So looking at the diet, and again, um, you know, there's so many different diets these days, right? There's like paleo and keto and whole, you know, anti-inflammatory, figuring out what works best for that um, individual is key. I think the sugar is a great one because a lot of people think like, I don't go and add a bunch of sugar to the things that I'm eating. They think that you have to be eating straight candy. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that that new kombucha that they try at the store, you know, has a ton of sugar inside of it. It's mm -hmm. not like a low sugar kombucha. You know, it's, they don't realize that green smoothie that they have at Jamba Juice has like more sugar than Coca-Cola. Right, and right. all these things play an impact. So there's a lot of educating and um, increasing awareness. And, I, and alcohol, I mean, that's, I would say, probably the biggest one where people, you know, they eat so healthy, but then they're having a glass or two of wine every night. Every night, And then yeah. that's, you know, that is where I'm like, this is probably where it's coming from. Mm. So... 
Yeah, there's a lot of educating and, like I said, very individualized because everyone's diet is so unique. Yeah, someone could be having those kombuchas daily and that could be the source or it's the wine or it's, um, you know, cereal at 11 p.m. at night. You know, we really have to delve into it. Uh, let's continue on and let's go into, um, well, you can talk about anything you want to mm-hmm. next, but I think one of the things that would be great to talk about is uh, the hormonal panel. Yeah, so hormones are interesting. I have a lot of people coming in here and they, they really want to check their hormones. So it's obviously hormones are involved in so much, so let's see where we're at. What I will say is that the times when we have symptoms of hormonal imbalance are usually times of transitions in the hormones. So um, puberty, postpartum time and menopause. So those are the, and then those are times of big hormonal changes. So puberty, things start to go up, um, postpartum things drop, menopause hormones drop, and then on a smaller scale is just PMS. So, um, and that's, I see a lot of women, you know, coming in with monthly uncomfortable symptoms, physical, mental, emotional. And that happens on a smaller scale because right before your period or what triggers your period is the hormones dropping. So it's on a smaller scale, but it's the cycle. And what I will say is generally speaking during the PMS time and during the postpartum time, hormones don't give me a tremendous amount of information. Um, because there's a transition that's happening. It's the transition and it's how that drop affects the brain and the body. So not to say I don't order them and there's a lot of different, and you know, there's a lot of different ways to test hormones. Um, you know, you could do it through the blood and there's pros and cons. The pros of the blood is it's, it's pretty easy to get and usually insurance covers it. Um, there are reference ranges and studies based on those reference ranges that are easy to reference and do a lot of evidence-based practice. Um, but the cons are that most of those hormones are bound and not always reflective of how someone feels. Mm. So then there's a saliva test um, that a lot of functional medicine and naturopathic doctors do that look at free, unbound hormones. The Dutch hormone test? That's urine. So, but this is more, I mean, a lot of different of these like um, functional labs offer uh, these saliva tests that yeah. either do a single day or all month long that looks at your hormones. So there's some, you know, benefits to that. The cons are that, um, you know, if you're taking any hormones, it's it's not accurate. Um, but as far as the free bioavailability, I mean, it, there's some benefit. I don't do a tremendous amount of that, and I'll explain why. And then there's the Dutch test, which is actually great. Um, it's a single, like a urine sample, and from urine you can get hormone metabolites, which can give a lot of information. But like I said, like really during that um, PMS and that postpartum time, I would rather people focus their time and resources, certainly like these these tests that aren't the blood test, so the Dutch test and the saliva test are, are an out-of-pocket expense for most people. So I think, again, PMS and um, postpartum that, you know, if you can devote that resources to self-care and getting the foundational pieces of health in balance you can get the hormones imbalanced. So, I mean, certainly studies show that um, the hormones PMS during PMS and during um, the premenstrual period and during postpartum period don't seem to be indicative. So like two people could have the same hormone levels, but one can feel terrible and the other can feel totally fine. So um, it's a, it's a, that could probably be a podcast in and of itself is testing hormones. But for the most part, I find that um, working with 
um, really individualized medicine and looking at the foundational pieces of health. So diet, hydration, movement, community, joy, correcting deficiencies, recognizing any potential other obstacles to health can do a tremendous amount to balance hormones. And there's another piece that just is getting some more research, and I'll just kind of bring that in, is like um, genetics. And this is getting, we're getting more and more information on this, but there are certain enzymes, for example, PMDD, premenstrual disorder, is a really significant form of PMS. It's very debilitating, um, and a number of women do experience. So it's like PMS times 10. It's it's, um, a pretty significant hormonal um, issue that women will experience always consistently pretty significant depression, anxiety right before their period. And we're finding that there are certain enzymes, so in this case, the COM. T enzyme that if you are, I don't want to get too sciencey here, but if your COMT enzyme is very fast, then people are more prone to having these postpartum depressions. And COMT is an enzyme that's responsible for metabolizing estrogen and dopamine and your stress hormones. So I'm saying this because a lot of people these days are doing that 23andMe test, that genetic test. And everyone actually has access to these enzymes. So the COMT, there is um, MTHFR, there's MAOI. Yeah, the raw data. The raw data. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. So they get their report that says they're like 98%, you know, Ashkenazi Jew or or whatever it is. But if you go on that site, you can download your raw data and then you can upload it to StratGene is something that I've used. Yeah, there's different websites. There's different websites. you just mentioned? StratGene. Strategy. I believe I'm saying that right by Ben Lynch and it tells you how your enzymes are working so it's just another variable what I'm trying to say is like you can look into this and we can talk more in detail about this but there are so many variables and so many lifestyle variables that affect how our genes are expressed as well so um, that's just another element that's I think is super exciting and I don't know how 100% clinically relevant it is yet but there's so much we don't know about PMS in the postpartum period that getting these other you know this research and the understanding how quickly or slowly your enzymes work and how that works in determining brain levels of hormones and um, stress hormones and its relationship to someone's experience to the hormonal cycle is interesting Mm. Um, but like I said I think it's more of like for those periods, an altered brain response to normal hormonal fluctuations. Uh, what about thyroid? Yeah, thyroid is key. If your thyroid is not balanced, you are um, not feeling good. Fatigue, depressed, dry skin, um, constipation, difficulty losing weight, sometimes temperature dysregulation. And that's another lab like vitamin D where there's a big range of normalcy. And um, most conventional doctors will just look at the TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. Yeah, like when you're on the blood work, you go down to that category, you see thyroid, you'll see a couple markers. Mm -hmm. So they traditionally mostly look for... TSH and maybe T4, total T4, free T4, that's looked at. So first, you know, TSH, again, a big range. I mean, and every lab is a little different, which is interesting. So usually it's like TSH normal range is 0.35 to maybe 5.5, but some labs it's 4.5, and some people are trying to move it to 2.5. But optimal, what is for most people, is between one and two. It doesn't mean that you can't be at three and not feel great. I wouldn't touch it. But I would just say, if you're not feeling optimal, you got to look at that piece. And so the TSH, you want to look at the free T4. You wanna which look, typically isn't ordered. So Typically, that's not ordered. Um, free T3, which is definitely not ordered typically. But free T3 is actually our bioavailable 
thyroid hormone. Why is that so important for thyroid? I mean, that's because for us is because that's what makes you feel good. I mean, and also because sometimes that T4 doesn't get converted into, I mean, it doesn't convert to T3 very efficiently. So you want to see what that level is and see how you feel. Just because one marker says you're normal doesn't mean that you're actually using your thyroid hormone in the right way. Exactly. And then there's reverse T3 too. So which could actually make T3 look normal. But if your reverse T3 is high, then some of that T3 is actually um, inactive. And that's a whole nother situation that talks about you're not converting your T4 to T3 accurately and that you need zinc and magnesium and selenium and stress and can inhibit that and gut health can inhibit that. So yeah, thyroid is big and looking at the full picture is important because thyroid is so important for metabolic health and hormonal balance. So important. I think it just emphasizes that, you know, again, there's well-meaning practitioners and physicians that are out there who are just doing what they were trained in. And you might have read somewhere, you've heard on a podcast, maybe from past guests about some thyroid issues they had and how that was affecting their body. And you're like, I can relate to that. But my doctor said my thyroid is is normal. And I think this is why it's important to work with somebody who's trained in that, understanding that story of labs, also combining them with how you feel and the symptoms you're going through yeah. to see if there's something deeper that's going on. I think one way to know if you have a good practitioner, even if it's you know the conventionally trained, is if you approach them and say, you know, I really would like to have these tests done. And if they say they won't order it, I mean, look elsewhere because you should be a partner in your health and know, and you should be able to advocate for the labs you want. Yeah, as long as you're semi-educated and coming in exactly. about this and you know, hey, this this is what yeah. you know this person said, or I feel like this is, might also be important. It's it's exactly that. It's a partnership. Any other tests that when people go in for their like yearly physical and they're really trying to get an accurate measure of just sort of where they stand in health, and obviously at the end of the day, we don't want people interpreting their labs on their own, but we're trying to teach almost like you know financial literacy, mm-hmm. the importance of teaching people and understanding that. We want people to understand at least so they can ask good questions. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd have them be looking at? Um, yeah, I hope I'm not forgetting anything that's very obvious, but, um, you know, I always on our annual panel, we will look at a vitamin B12. We look at magnesium. We are now, and I, I, depending on someone's lifestyle, I will look at heavy metals as well. I like to just because of the toxicity in our fish. So I'll often look at mercury, lead, and arsenic if it seems relevant to that person. But I think it's important because mercury levels are, are commonly elevated these days so i'll take a look at that because that's just another cool a tool to looking at someone's optimal wellness and then if we are going to look at hormones because i know you've asked me that i don't think i ever fully addressed that it's not that i don't look at hormones i do so if someone's in the premenstrual time and they want to get an idea or perimenopausal time if you can time it you want to look at about a week before you expect to get your period And that is when, um, because you only produce progesterone the last two weeks of your cycle, so from ovulation to when you get your period, it's that week before your period where progesterone is at the highest and estrogen should be at the highest. So you want to see, because there is um, something called estrogen dominance, which is a phenomenon that affects a lot of women. It doesn't always show up in the blood. It might show up better in the saliva, but it um, certainly is a contributor to PMS where your body's estrogen-progesterone ratio is more heavily estrogen, and um, that can lead to a lot of bloating and breast tenderness anger, irritability. So that's one area you can look at that week before you expect to get your period. And then for fertility and um, menopause, menopause, it doesn't matter when you check in the cycle, but you do want to look at um, FSH and LH. They're your pituitary hormones. You want to look at estradiol, progesterone, total testosterone, free testosterone, and DHEA sulfate. And that kind of covers up the hormones. I love it. 
Dr. Nate, let's talk about the liver and the gut and how important they are to just our core functions inside the body. I think you have a unique perspective on it. Uh, so I'm going to hand you the soapbox to stand on and go to town. Oh, thank you. Well, in naturopathic medicine, we learn when we feel overwhelmed with um, you know, someone coming in with a lot of different symptoms. As a student, we were trained, when in doubt, treat the gut, treat the liver. And it's true. Um, the liver and gut health um, are so important for overall health and hormonal balance and mood and energy. and you can you need to focus on it so um, it can be simple but um, in doing a workup with someone you want to find out you know get a good look at their how their digestion is because you could be coming in with PMS and you don't want to ignore the fact that maybe they're bloated and constipated um, so you know microbiome imbalance um, which can happen either like small intestine or large intestine can have a huge role in hormones and brain health and energy and liver. Our liver is so important for metabolizing hormones and environmental toxins that if those areas are further supported, you are doing a lot to support that foundation for everything else to come into place and feel balanced. So we talked a lot about the gut in this series because of the gut brain connection and we haven't talked much about the liver. So so let's talk about the common sort of insults and challenges that stress our liver out. And then let's talk about some potential uh, things that you do. Obviously, the treatments in naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, they're, they're holistic. So it's not like you're isolating one organ necessarily, even though there's things that might be supportive for it. But what are the things that are happening in this day and age that are wreaking havoc on our livers? Yeah, so the liver is responsible for metabolizing everything. I mean, everything we come into exposure to, so any chemicals, toxins, um, medication, supplements, have to go through the liver, alcohol goes through the liver. Um, And we're living in an increasingly more toxic environment um, where it's just, we're we're calling upon it to work more. So, and the liver's built, you know, I heard the argument against, you know, supporting the liver. The liver's designed to detox, that's what it does, so you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, there's usually like, uh, on articles on like, CNN or other places sure. they usually call like an expert at NYU or whatever. Right. Like, your liver's made to detox. You don't need to do anything additional to do that. So yeah, and to think, we yeah, we've had this liver, the same sort of liver from the beginning of time, but now all of a sudden we're exposed to so many more industrial toxins and pollutants. So, you know, it's working more. Everything from indoor air pollutants to the fact that a lot of the medications that people are on are ending up in the water system to just our lifestyles and the fact that most of the foods and the things that we're drinking come from factories. So they have preservatives and toxins and the fact that there's just, I think, what, 83,000 new chemicals that have been created since the 70s or the 80s. And babies are being born with chemicals in their bodies already. So we're taxing the liver more. And the liver is so important for metabolizing these toxins. So if it's not happening as efficiently or we're overtaxing it, it's nice to give it some support sometimes, especially when it comes to hormones, because the liver is responsible for metabolizing our hormones. The gut, too. Um, the gut has its own estrobiome. So again, that's also important for healthy hormonal balance. But for sure, the gut. How can you argue against just giving the gut some support? So I usually like to, you know, in addressing the gut, taking, you know, three weeks where we're just being mindful of the gut. So avoiding any potential toxins. So take three weeks without alcohol, um, eating organic whenever possible, and supporting your liver through really a nutrient-dense diet and sometimes some additional supplements 
to help support the liver function. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, the master cleanse, you know, the lemonade. I mean, I'm not, there's so many right. different ones. I know cleansing is so loaded, <laughs> but I'm talking about eating cleanly, organically, and supporting the liver with, you know, certain herbs like, you know, milk thistle or burdock and maybe emphasizing the liver-supported vegetables. Um, but you will bring in sometimes some additional support if somebody needs it. Absolutely. And do you do that in the form of supplementation or do you do that in the form of uh, herbs? Yeah, herbs and nutrients. So maybe potentially some more antioxidants, some NAC, which is a precursor to glutathione. So um, that's great for the liver, you know, a liver supportive herbal combination. Absolutely, I will do. So basically good, well-rounded liver support supplement with some more antioxidants dark leafy greens, probiotics. Do you feel like, uh, of course, they got to do all the fundamentals, but do you feel like there's um, a product that you feel comfortable mentioning that would be like a good for like daily liver support? Um, yeah. The, or is it too personalized based on well, what Well, no, I mean, there are some, I'm just trying to think of what's available out there because we have one at our office called Liver Detox, and I always use that because it has the milk thistle and the burdock and some antioxidants. But, you know, if you, I will say, like, the companies that I know that you can get at Whole Foods, like Gaia Herbs, I think is a really good brand. I think they have a liver support. It's pretty comprehensive. Yogi Tea has a liver detox tea. I mean, that's just something simple you can do whenever just to help support that liver. Yeah, but if you have deeper things going on, fatty liver, other stuff, you really should be working with a practitioner. Oh, absolutely. Who will put together a plan uh, like yeah. you do for your patients. Yeah, absolutely. But then, yes. So yes, if deeper things, for sure, individualized plan. But if you're on your own and you're hearing this, you know, just taking those three weeks to really try to, you know, deto- you know, not do alcohol, not do sugar, yeah. not do any dairy or gluten and really just eat cleanly and organically. Um, you people feel a lot better. Yeah, it's so true. You can feel the difference. You that's can there. feel the difference. Dr. Nate. Thank you for being such a wealth of knowledge and coming on the podcast and educating our listeners on a whole bunch of things. And I think that uh, I hope the men stuck it all the way through because, you know, it's so important for us to support the women in our lives and understand uh, how to best be there for them and, and sort of change the societal pressures that women end up receiving that nobody really designed on purpose. It's just kind of there. And uh, for the women that are listening too, I hope you have a deeper and better understanding of the of how the different phases work for people and what you go through and how these changes are normal, but you can also feel empowered and actually do things to support your health. And and Maggie, you provided all that for us. So I really want to just say thank you for coming on the podcast. If people want to find out more about you and follow you on social media or potentially work with you in person, where can they uh, find you out? Well, I have a website, drmaggynay.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely go to that. I have a free downloadable handout on um, really the foundational pieces of health that I advocate, so that's available to anybody. I work at an amazing integrative medical center in Santa Monica, and that website is um, akashacenter.com. And then I'm on Instagram at Dr. Maggie Nay. Dr. Maggie Nay, that's it. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate you, and uh, thank you for also being in the series. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided 
on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search there, find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.